that was the, the the motto of that 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 decade. Gordon Gecko. Yeah, greed is good. Excess, because you know he used to be like sort of cool. Like rappers would get beloved, their, but rappers would get their pictures taken. Yeah, black with people him. like Trump. Maybe they, they still do. Like Maybe they still do. Some do, but they get a lot of flack for it from their white liberal friends. Yeah. <laughs> or they're like, oh, I've never liked that guy. I've always known he was a racist. I've always known he was a sexist. Turncoat motherfucker. That's 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 why, like you know, he was able to be popular enough to have a TV show. He was a rich guy who wasn't amazingly attractive. Who banged a lot of good-looking women. Again, again, he was he was a bit of like like Airwolf. He was he was a bit of a, a totemic thing of the eighties. Yeah, he's what? never been that masculine. Not like the eighties masculinity that you kind of like. You know the um, what people remember of eighties masculinity of macho men, square jaws. Like he didn't meet any of that kind of criteria. Do you know what I mean? He's always been quite effeminate. I wouldn't. I wouldn't say effeminate, but like mannerisms wise. Yeah, he's... mentioning no names. Someone was 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 telling me once about someone they worked for who was like a you know very successful businessman, and this this person used to have like manicures. This this person used to pride themselves on their the condition of their hands, looking like they'd never done a day's work. Okay, yeah. Because among their circle, they'd look at each other's hands. If someone has like the softest babyish hands that have never like literally picked anything up. That's like a, right. a, a sign of social status. And that, that was like Trump's style. Like you say, it wasn't macho. It wasn't effeminate, though. But it's, it, it's very like, it's well, posh. it's very well posh and primp. And like, he's, he doesn't have to be strong because he's got like 20 bodyguards. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to episode 5 of the Ill-Informed Insight Podcast. Joining me once again today is Tim. Good evening, even though you said today. We're we're in different time zones. (laughs) Figure that one out, listeners. And we're going to be conversating today about the death of conversation, as exemplified by Channel 4 News' Kathy Newman. We'll also, I say will also, I'll also be giving my review of Matt Damon's latest movie, Downsizing, because Tim hasn't seen it. But before all of that... We talked last week about something called Trump Derangement Syndrome. Thanks for staying with us. I'm Bill O'Reilly in a weekdays of Bernie segment tonight. Trump Derangement Syndrome. Bernie says it's an epidemic right now. He joins us from Miami. So we had Bush Derangement Syndrome. We had Obama Derangement Syndrome, too. Is this worse, the Trump deal? It is. It is, and I will document this in just a moment, but it's even worse than cancer. (laughs) Trump derangement syndrome is potentially lethal. Trump derangement syndrome, right off the bat, it goes both ways, right? Trump derangement syndrome, if I asked you, Tim, what does that phrase mean? What would you define it as? I would say Trump derangement syndrome is... It's on a lot of different levels, but it's, it's best personified, say, by the news... Like Trump could find the cure for cancer, say, like just one day. Yeah, what a dick. Yeah, like, what a bust. You know, it, 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 it's like you're 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 sort of unwillfully applying a filter to everything that you see and hear and experience in life. Yeah, you're seeing it's Trump important, through a certain lens yeah, of and, insanity almost. Yeah, and it's obviously very important to have your own views and your own lens and your own filters in life. But it's it's when you don't realise it's sort of seeping through and affecting every fibre of your existence. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, I, mean, um, I burnt my toast this morning. Fucking Trump yeah. burning my fucking toast. That was a fairly long definition of <laughs> Trump Derangement Syndrome. But yeah, you're basically... You pretty much in agreement with you you can always edit it but 
it's basically like Trump being elected president of the United States has just driven a lot of people insane to the extent where they will say amazingly insane things. Like the intro there was, um, you might recognize Bill O'Reilly's voice if you like hate watching Bill O'Reilly and Fox News. You heard that guy there, one of his guests say like, oh God, yeah, Trump derangement syndrome, it's worse than cancer. That's what Trump does. He's he's encouraged a world of hyperbole. He's, he's basically just turned up the dial a little bit on oh, crazy it's given everyone license just to be a little bit more outrageous <laughs> in either condemning the things he stands for yeah. or indeed cheering on the things he stands for it's like his his very existence as president has given everyone an opportunity just to just to act up everyone look kim will jump yeah. <laughs> a lot of them He's moved the boundaries of what's acceptable to say as a presidential candidate. Because that's when the term was first coined, was actually when he was running in the Republican primaries. Uh, those of you with like short memories, the Republican primaries, like Trump announced he was going to run. Everybody laughed, thought it was a joke. And the Republican Party had three golden boys that they were kind of lining up. They were pretty sure like the next nominee is going to be one of these three. It was uh, Jeb Bush, Ted Cruz and Marco Rubio. They were like the golden boys of the Republican Party. And Trump, during the Republican primaries, the debates, you remember, he just like, he headshot each of them one by one with just like a simple two-word phrase about them. Trump literally just seemed to turn up one day. Bosh, you know, within two years, he's, he's president. But Obama fuck. insulted him at a dinner, at the, uh, the correspondence dinner. And Trump was just like, you know what? Fuck you, I'm going to have your job in two years. And he did. The madman did it. Mm. He's a very unpredictable guy. And like traditionally, the president has been seen as the guy with his hand on the tiller of the boat, you know, stopping it going over the edge of the waterfall. So, so you want someone with a steady hand and Trump is anything <laughs> but that. You wouldn't want that guy holding the tiller of that boat. Yes, right. but so you, can, so you can understand there is this sort of mass psychic subconscious unnerve that, that, has, that has sort of seeped into the world since his election. Like I said, the Republican three golden boys, he took them out with two word phrases about each of them. So like it was little Marco, Marco Rubio, because he is a little bit short in stature and he's kind of like, he's got baby face, Lion Ted. Lion Ted. That was another, that was a really good one. Yeah. Oh, he said his dad was the Zodiac killer or something? No, he said <laughs> no, his, his dad, dad shot, sus- shot, yeah. shot JFK. <laughs> and, that, and that Ted Cruz may possibly be the Zodiac killer. And his, I remember I just seeing the headline of like Ted Cruz's wife denies allegation that her husband is the Zodiac killer. It was amazing. Oh, and Jeb Bush, uh, low energy Jeb. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> like killed them, shot them dead. But yeah, it, it, Trump was massive fun during the Republican primary when nobody was taking the idea of him being president seriously, except the Republican Party who are like, oh my God, he's actually popular. He's more popular than our golden boys. And they freaked out. And you had the, uh, the hashtag never Trump movement. Hashtag never Trump started with Republicans <laughs> and then transferred to Democrats pretty much. Yeah, because and it was only really since he became president that that all changed. And he, he actually said that this week in, in Davos. He basically said everyone, I used to get very good coverage until I became a politician. And then I realized like what the lying media is, you know, so he's in, he's in, he's encouraged people not to trust the press, whereas, like you know, it, which is another sort of unsettling thing. You know, he didn't start that though. Telling people you're being lied to, you know. Yeah, obviously, he didn't begin the the whole the no. public distrusting media thing, but he, he definitely it. he capitalized on it big time. He tapped into a nerve. But yeah, they really don't trust politicians and they don't trust the media. So yeah, he runs on a platform of I'm not a typical Washington politician. I'm the anti. He didn't say he was an anti politician, but you know what I mean. And also, the media lies too much two popular sentiments in America at the time. 
But then again, like if if someone's very popular, sometimes people can almost be deranged in their support of that person, you know, and they'll just support them no matter what they do, however bad. Yeah, it was like during the primaries, two sides emerged. There was the hashtag never Trumpers. And then there were the people who were like, there, were the, there was the side of, of the Republican Party that's felt for the last 20, 25 years. The Republicans have ceded too much ground to Democrats on everything except maybe the economy and healthcare. And then Obama got his health care passed through. Republicans are really pissed off the Republican Party, especially Republicans under the age of 35. They like Trump because he was attacking the Republican Party, and that's what they wanted. But yeah, you're right. It does go both ways. But you mentioned the media. I mean, that's definitely the broadcast media in particular and print media. They're very much, I would say, exacerbating the problem of Trump derangement syndrome, where every single story is overinflated to the point of almost being farcical. So uh, the Russia collusion story, that was probably the biggest and most blatant attempt. How long has that been going on for now? Over a year. Yeah, it's come on, guys. Since about October 2016, I think. Mm. It's the first story that was trying to delegitimize Trump as a president, right? And thus far, like, there's been virtually nothing that's actually damning against Trump. Like, you had a couple of people in his administration, but I, that's the thing where Trump's going kind of, he's got that defense of he's not a Washington guy. Yeah. So he just quickly assembled a team. He didn't vet them properly because he's not a Washington guy. And some of them, yeah, like they technically committed perjury of, did you have contact with the Russians? Yes. Did you have contact with the Russians at this time? No, it was later than it, it was at the time, that kind of thing. But there really isn't much, there's, it's not much to the Russia collusion story. The idea that President Trump is Vladimir Putin's Manchurian candidate of choice. Do you know what I mean? Like, it's yeah. kind of a ridiculous notion. It is ridiculous, but it's, it's, it's endemic of what I see as maybe secret war is far too strong a way to describe it. But I think there's, there's a definite sort of government within the government, like the sort of civil service, say, the equivalent of America. They don't want Trump as their president and, you know, they'll do whatever they can to, to get him out. A lot of his administration is still Barack Obama's people. Mm. We're very much anti-Trump. His doctor, his, his doctor's Obama's do- a doctor. But as it- we said last week, he gave him a clean bill of health. But other exaggerated stories and just examples of insanity from broadcast media and Donald Trump. Do you remember when Trump tweeted out the word, the non-word, Kovfefe? Well, it's become a word now. <laughs> C-O-V-F-E-F-E. Wait, he was obviously, like, I think he was trying to spell the word coverage, but his stubby, tiny little fingers... That actually made the 48-hour news cycle. 24 hours, I could kind of maybe understand, but 48 hours of talking about a misspelling. I'm I'm sure it's probably like exhibit number 33B in his upcoming uh, (laughs) impeachment trial. It's probably going to be, it'll be like part of the evidence against him. You know, again, it was like any, the smallest thing is latched onto and jumped onto as an opportunity to impeach the guy. (laughs) (laughs) The report that, Donald Trump asked for the Gorilla Channel to be put on. Now, this this was like blatant fake news. You don't have to be uh, pro or anti-Trump to recognise this was obvious nonsense. But the media took it seriously because it was anti-Trump. Obviously, all of this, with the exception of Fox News, fake of course. Fake news like, has become a massive thing. Trump derangement syndrome has seeped into our government. With the government, Theresa May, like this week, she she spoke about they're going to open a, they're going to open a new government department. You know, it's costing millions of pounds to to deal with the issue of to fake news. Monitor Trump's tweets. <laughs> no, just no to deal with the issue of fake news and oh yeah yeah and yeah, fake news that. as a thing. It as as a, as a thing, it didn't exist until Trump ca- was became president. It wasn't on the agenda, yeah. and now it's it's affecting like the politics of other countries. And like, it's co- you're going to cost me money in tax. Like, them opening up this office to investigate fake news, which is fake in itself. It's just ridiculous. The number one thing they have to investigate is what impact does it have. 
a guy making up stories and posting them to the internet and hoping that they go viral. What impact does that actually have? Because if the answer is negligible, yeah. what do you need this new agency for? Like you say, of taxpayers' money, what yeah. do you need it for? The fact it didn't need to exist until this guy came along. That's that's what fascinates and scares me. And Amazing shock to the I know, system. And I tell you, we might be laughing about Trump derangement syndrome, but it, it, it could become a, like a fucking serious thing for you or me if we happen to be in at work in central London that day when, when he comes to visit and like 10,000 university students... Like, oh, he cancelled one visit, but you're saying he's planned another. Yeah, he's been invited. They, and Theresa May's confirmed it. Yeah, I so, know she was trying to... The, so the report was she was trying to mend yeah, yeah. the special relationship. Especially just grovel. So yeah, he's he's coming at some point later. So he, he's going to have a visit here. It might not be a state visit, and they reckon he'll travel everywhere by helicopter. So, that, <laughs> but it's because they're expecting trouble. Because yeah. our own mayor is probably going to encourage people to go out and protest him and say, Khan. and he's just stirring up trouble. Deranged after Trump sort of got elected, you suddenly had all these like uh, far right Nazi types popping their heads up in the states, and you, you had things like Charlottesville happening where people yeah. got run over and killed, and like that. That has all been whipped up. This derangement syndrome, it's, just, it's a serious thing because it's, it's actually like stirring up a lot of trouble. You know, I was in Los Angeles when he got elected and I was worried I was going to miss my flight out because th- they were protesting the holding up the freeways, which are congested enough normally. You left the city burning. Yeah, you know, I sort of looked out the window at the plane. It was like quite a sight. <laughs> An unrelated forest fire. This Trump derangement syndrome, like like a syndrome, a syndrome's a good word because it is it's like a disease that can spread, and it's it's not it's a very bad thing. Maybe this guy's right. Maybe it is worse because <laughs> it'll kill everyone. If you'd have asked me, say four months ago, is Trump derangement syndrome is that really a real cultural phenomenon, collective neuroses kind of thing? And I would have said no. It's just it's the kind of colloquial phrasing of like of how people are over-egging it in terms of being anti-Trump. They're trying really hard to kind of impress each other on how anti-Trump they are by pushing things to extremes. Yeah, but come on. But what convinced me it was real, what convinced me TDS, Trump derangement syndrome, is real, was the North Korea reporting and how the narrative that was formed on North Korea launching, testing ICBMs over Japan was that it was all Donald Trump's fault. And I was like, well, how can, how can any sane person come to that conclusion and blame anyone other than the Kim dynasty? Yeah, because it, it, it takes more than uh, 18 months, which is like how long he'd been president for, yeah. to, to, develop a nu- even. to develop a nuclear weapons program, an intercontinental ballistic missiles program. So like while Clinton was president, while Bush was president, while Obama was president, they were doing all this stockpiling, they were planning this stuff. They didn't do anything. They we knew it was coming. Kick the can down the road. In 20 years in the making, the, the yeah. North, Korea, North Korea will yeah. eventually have a bomb, a nuclear bomb. Yeah. And it's not just North Korea. There's, there's lots of other issues where, where, where cans have been kicked metaphorically down the road by various presidents. And oh my God, suddenly someone's scooped up all those cans and it's Donald Trump. God help us all. You know, but God blame us all as well because we didn't do anything about these things before. But yeah, North Korea kind of convinced me, yeah, there is a cultural phenomenon where there are groups of people that would just blame anything and everything on Donald Trump. Like Russia annexes part of Eastern Europe, that would be blamed on Donald Trump. Do you remember in the late 90s, it was starting to emerge Bill Clinton's history of what can only really be described as sexual assault and rape? Mm Mm-hmm was starting to come alight. He was, a bit, he was a bit of a lad, wasn't he? Let's, two, let's be honest, he, he was a bit of a boy. It was two decades of real 
serious allegations that were starting to come to light. The catalyst, obviously, Monica Lewinsky's semen stained dress. Do you remember how hard the Republicans tried to push for Bill Clinton's impeachment? They pushed so hard, they over-egged it so much that they actually turned Bill Clinton into a figure of sympathy. Bill Clinton came out of that scandal more popular than when he went into it. Well, he did He did the very sort of 90s thing of just sitting, I have an addiction. Just sitting down, opening up. But that's 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 what the nineties was was about, you know. Suddenly it was like just like the, you know being honest, yeah, and vulgar, yeah, not vulgar. That was the eighties. I mean, as much as we both enjoy pointing out the insanity of anti-Trumpers, not to suggest that we're both massively pro-Trump, it's just kind of funny watching people be insane. Hmm. There is insanity going, like as we said at the beginning, this goes both ways. TDS, Trump derangement syndrome. There's well, insanity I, on both sides here. Well, I I, I realise that everybody. When I say everybody, I'll just talk about the news and media. He's on the... It's just like Trump, 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 Trump. It's all... Every day. Every, everything, all the time. Fucking hit. We talk about he, him all the time as he's well. He's the biggest story. What's he going to say next? What's he going to do next? Is he going to make me laugh again? Undoubtedly. You know, I, I can have a laugh about it. But like when I get worried... When I, when I do realise that it can actually affect me negatively, other people's opinion of him, it's like when there are going to be like riots in London because he's here. It's stupid and uh, and unnecessary, and it might it won't be a riot. But yeah, but I'll be stuck in fucking traffic for hours. I know it. Yeah, and a lot of people will get kettled who had nothing to do with it, including tourists. And it's things. just so unnecessary, and like the media could be reporting on far more interesting things but rather I, than coffee thing, but i always say like gorilla channel but i'm always saying like the, he's probably sent the media mad because all these commentators have to like be up at 3am in the morning to sort of catch whatever madness he's oh, typed what out. did he just tweet oh god and they never had that with obama yeah obama much like bill clinton kind of made the media's lives easier by always being ahead of the story well really? always getting the narrative out there before the media can form its own one like bill clinton was a master of that up until the end and of course, they were much more sort of close to the media as well. Than Trump is. The press well, loved Trump Obama. Used to be close. Well, he, like I said, until he became a politician. There's insanity on both sides in the sense that Trump can do some really outrageous things and the supporters of Trump will turn a blind eye. And when somebody goes like, hey, uh, what Trump did there was outrageous. Oh, that's just, you're just suffering from Trump derangement syndrome. You know, they can kind of dismiss it offhand. It's become a bit of a trope to de- deflect any criticism, even if it's kind of legitimate. To date, I think the worst thing Trump's done is his travel slash immigration slash Muslim ban. That was a disaster. But again, it was it was a disaster because it was painted as a terribly bad thing by the by the press. And to be honest, Tom, Obama introduced travel rest- restrictions on many of these countries for periods of his presidency, and nothing was 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 no eyelids were, were lifted at all. I agree on that. And, but- and the bottom line is, Tom, that most of the terrorism is coming out of these countries. I'm sorry. I agree that it was Obama's Doesn't, it's list. Not it was a based on. Ban. I agree it was, on, it was based on Obama's list. It wasn't permanent. However, Trump sold it as a Muslim ban, and then when it came to actually drawing up and enacting legislation, it was a travel ban. Well, it was. A, did it he was ever a say? Ban. Did he ever but say was, Muslim? No. Yes. No. He didn't yes. say Muslim ban. He did. He said it maybe like twelve times in the run up to the election. Oh, to the election. Yeah. That's Obviously, I, after what? after he became president, I don't, I don't remember that. He said we need to stop immigration from these Muslim countries until we get a grip. He said it maybe like ten or twelve times over the course of the election. But oh, that's 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 different. That's different. He said, but that's what the, but the legislation was. Muslim countries. It was his pledge. We're banning. Yeah, that's fine. Immigration not from Muslim, Muslim countries. Not Muslims. Well, come on, man. Are you come on. What there's loads of Muslims. If you're living banning things from of, Muslim countries, what are you primarily there's, banning? There's loads of Muslims living in non-Muslim countries. There's nothing. Yeah, I know. Although, but what about the people that got caught in the middle, who were uh, you know lived 
in Britain most of their lives, but technically their parents are Iranian. And so they got put on the travel ban list. They voted on it late in the hour, late in the day. They tried to sneak it through. And then the following morning, the implementation of it was absolutely disastrous. It was chaos at the airports. Nobody had any idea what was going on. Trump's administration didn't communicate anything to anyone. It was a disaster, man. It is a disaster. And it's terrible because... It was such is such an emotional thing. These poor you said these poor people caught in the middle, you know, who wouldn't be able to travel and stuff. But then you think from a logical point of view, there's more chance of being killed by your toaster than being killed by a terrorist, really. So having this sort of travel ban, it wouldn't really change your chances of survival. No, it's an extreme measure for It's an emotional response and it played on people's emotions. Yeah. So it's always gonna be a disaster, isn't it? Trump derangement syndrome was used as a deflection. Of like, oh, that's these what I consider very much to be legitimate criticism. His worst moment, yeah. his administration's worst moment by far. Anti-Trumpers, they were banged to rights on that one. There's too many people deflecting legitimate criticism of Trump with the accusation of Trump derangement syndrome. But that's not to say it doesn't exist, because I think it does. Oh, it definitely does. There are some insane things said about Trump. But the fact is... White supremacist being one. I think all Trump derangement syndrome is, it's unavoidable. Because he isn't he isn't a normal politician. He's completely unpredictable. Are you saying everyone's bringing their own bias to Trump? No, I'm saying his his very presence is 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 affecting everybody because he's he's so unpredictable. It's like people like him because he's unpredictable. But even the people who like him, they'll have that subconscious just sense of unknown. Or even yeah. even you know, it's like if he does pull off these things, what's going what's going to be the consequence? You know, of him building this huge wall. I think the word uh, chaos is kind of synonymous. I think that's a word you're going to see, like when Trump's out of office and people are kind of analysing from a distance. Things are always changing, but when things change massively, there, there has to be chaos. Trump's like a, just a reflection of, of, of like all these changes that are happening. Like he was a reflex of like Brexit. It's like it seems to be things things have been going in a certain direction, the PC way. You know, it was PC to want to be part of the eu sort of pc to want to have hillary clinton as your president she's a bitch slap wasn't it so it's like this reflexive like like a sort of reflex is it like a a death jerk or is it a a sort of birth pang who knows but there's 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 sort of these there is massive shifting going on it's like the political class just got shoved yeah everything's been 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 upended recently things are changing it feels that's why the world feels chaotic it's like they've been shoved and they just, they're in shock about it and don't really know. Like, kind of like uh, an underdeveloped child who hasn't got the maturity to like deal with the fact that somebody just shoved them. They're just sort of lashing out. Mm. You mentioned earlier, Trump is an anti-politician. And, you know, he, he ran on the platform of, I'm not a Washington politician. You can trust me. I'm not like these bastards. I'm a different kind of bastard. I think what that means, though, is he doesn't really know how the wheels turn in Washington he doesn't have any real friends or connections in Washington, which, you know, sad to say, you can't just be one man and get things done. The American system was set up pretty much to deny that possibility. So he needs connections, he needs friends, and he hasn't got any and he's trying, in Washington. And he's trying to enforce, he's trying to sort of enact this sense of trust. The only way he can do that is to deliver on his promises. And he feels people will trust him if he says, I'm going to build a wall. But he was, he's, trying to bulldoze, to he's trying to bulldoze his way through, you know, to sort of prove to people that he'll do what he said yeah in the early going all those executive signings yes that was him showing listen i'm for real yeah i really want to get things done but it's creating a lot of resistance naturally the office has the office of the president has restrictions on it obviously for a reason he can't fill his administration completely which means he's been left with like former obama staffers who don't like trump 
and uh, leaking things to the press, negative stories and things like this. He's basically been, Trump's been forced to rely on military generals who like his Reagan-esque America will be the strongest military force in the world position. They like that and they like Trump for that. Basically, I'll give you loads of money and infinite cash. But a lot of Americans don't like the idea that former military generals are informing his foreign policy and what have you and his mm. defense strategies. And he's also, been, he's had to resort to cronyism, giving jobs to friends of his and his family members. He's, he's almost had to do that because he doesn't know anyone in Washington. Nobody in Washington is really w- willing to work with him, including the party he is now leader of. And the interesting thing, he, he did run on a platform of um, saying America first. And in, in that sense, he was going to sort of keep it sort of local. He was going to sort of keep it very native yeah but no he sort of declared jerusalem the capital of israel he's you know threatened north korea with nuclear annihilation (laughs) you know he's stepping out the north korea thing is his reagan style reassertion of america's going nowhere we're still running this shit Mm. and he's also very proud of what's happened to the economy it's sort of like the american stock market is at least is is booming unprecedented might just be a big bubble obviously the corporation tax which is like the one thing Donald Trump actually got through in his first year in office. He didn't really get much done, to be honest. Mm. And he's kind of lucky he got that um, he got that tax reform through. I think Trump supporters would have turned on him if he had a full year where he didn't really get anything done. I think they would have lost a lot of hope in him and turned on him. Mm. And what was really kind of um, keeping their support for him up was the fact that the media was going insane in terms of attacking him and desperate to impeach him, being desperate to impeach him. He doesn't really have a vision, though, does he, Trump? He does have a vision. I don't think it's a, it's, it's a vision. I think he has more of an, an image he feels he has to live up to now. He has to be like the, the Donald, you know, very sort of casual still in the way he talks to people in interviews. Yeah. He hasn't, hasn't changed his mannerisms. So again, he's, there is the accusation of, that he's very unpresidential just in the way he behaves. Yeah, you get the feeling he's not being coached by anyone. Mm. Or, or if he is, he's not <laughs> listening to them anyway. What effect is Donald Trump having on political discourse? Not... Not that I thought political discourse was in a good shape before President Trump. Again, he's turned it up a notch just in terms of what people can say. Like everyone's like got excited, like little school children a couple of weeks ago. Oh, I can say shithole now on television. Shithole, shithole, shithole. And then someone who's pro-Trump says it and it's like the interview has to stop. (laughs) Yeah, so he's, he's, he's affected the discourse. And again, like I said, even... It's, it's come across the Atlantic. There's, there's been like time taken up in Parliament, then fucking debating him. He's, he's affected political discourse everywhere. A polarizing effect. He's just deranging everyone. Everyone's sort of lost their lost their sense of sense. I'm not entirely at ease with the phrase derangement syndrome. Like not just in relation to Donald Trump. Like in the uh, the clip that introduced this segment, Bill Clinton, uh, Bill Clinton, Bill O'Reilly mentioned. Yeah, there was a Bush derangement syndrome. The press reported on that. There was an Obama derangement syndrome, the birther movement that Donald Trump kind of kept alive when it was dying. We're in a society where people will throw around accusations of like mental health problems, the things that are effectively mental health issues and accusing each other and smearing each other of like, you're suffering from some sort of neurosis and that's why I don't take you seriously. You know, it's like some old school communist thing. It's like accusing people of wrong thinking. Mm. You know, you need re-education. Your brain is broken. And again, very un-PC to accuse someone of being senile or... Disturbed in some way. I mean, that kind of rhetoric is not good for the discourse. Not just political discourse, public discourse in general. It sets you off on the wrong foot, <laughs> doesn't it? You know I mean? Accusing your uh, interlocutor of being a psychopath. Yeah. Kind of poor form when it comes to the art of conversation. 
especially when it's like you're accusing each other of mental health issues over the fact that like it's just a mere dis- it's just a mere disagreement that you're having so why why does that justify you have a mental problem that you must fix that's the only reason why you don't agree with me or even worse i can't be your friend anymore you know that's another sort of thing people have become a lot more stirated in their sort of political lines and mm, saw that on facebook a lot draw a line uh, during the elections i see it quite a bit of yeah i don't even know any tories how are they winning no, nobody i even know well, it's like would ever vote Tory. i've seen people writing statuses like if i find you supporting trump i'm going to defriend you <laughs> <laughs> you know seriously you wonder what do these people think bigotry is like Anyway, there's no charity when it comes to understanding somebody who has a dis, uh, has a different point of view. It's it's like the flimsiest, weakest excuse for condemnation, just so you can refuse to understand what the other person's saying. Speaking of the death of conversation, there was a wonderful display of this a couple of weeks ago when Channel 4 News' Kathy Newman went head-to-head with Canadian clinical psychologist Jordan Peterson. I mean, look at the conversation we're having right now. You know, like you're certainly willing to risk offending me in the pursuit of truth. Why should you have the right to do that? It's been rather uncomfortable. Well, I'm, I'm very glad I put you on the spot. <laughs> Well, I'm great, but, but, no, but you get my, my point. Speech. You get my point. It's like you're you're doing what you should do, which is digging a bit to see what the hell's going on, so and that you, is what you should do. But you're exercising your freedom of speech to certainly risk offending me, and that's fine. I think more power to you, as far as I'm concerned. So you haven't sat there, and I'm just trying. I'm just trying to work that out. I mean. Ha, gotcha. You have got me. You have got me. I'm trying to work that through in my head. Yeah, yeah. It took a while. It took a while. It did. It did. So that was a clip there. From Channel 4 News with a broadcast journalist, I guess you'd call her Kathy Newman, having a debate, quote unquote debate, with Jordan Peterson. And uh, if you don't know who Jordan Peterson is, he's a Canadian clinical psychologist slash university lecturer. And he's risen to prominence in the last couple of years on YouTube. His uh, He does these lectures that are filmed, they're uploaded to YouTube. And his basic, I would sum up his message, like if I had to sum it up succinctly, it's basically just men are largely good capable of doing good things they just need a little bit of encouragement a little bit of confidence and that's it but he's yeah he he dares to be pro-men in the age of the like harvey weinstein revelations and things like that you know at a time when it's like at a time when it's popular and fashionable to demonize and vilify men he's speaking up for men yeah and i think to be honest men do need a little bit of support because you could you you'd only have to go back about 80 years but any previous like generation of man will just look at men today and be like <laughs> oh boy <laughs> where are your blouses women why aren't you at war do you know what i mean is the- we're untested though well, no, as men we are completely untested compared to prior generations yeah where it was more acceptable to like fight to the death in the streets and there'd be no consequences it was, you were have, expected to go to war have, you're not expected to go to war anymore as a man do you know what i mean no you, you could have jewels couldn't you as a gentleman. Oh, D-U, D-U-A-L-S, yeah. not jewels and jewellery. Yeah, you could have jewels and, like, you know, slap each other with, with your glove and uh, arrange to try and shoot each other the next morning. And, like, you know, there's there's none of that stuff in, in a man's existence today. It was socially acceptable to start a war over a woman. In England, it was sort of law. For, during the mid- mid- medieval times, it was it was law that every Sunday, every man in the village had to go out on the green and practice archery for, like, a few hours. Yeah, in case the Vikings come back. You know, it was... 
there's none of that today. So men do need that little bit of bolstering, I think, because we're in danger of sort of not not making the most of of our potential and our potential is isn't just needlessly violence yeah that's like that's lashing out and resentment but jordan peterson i'd say he's known he's considered a controversial character and you know doing my kind of limited research digging around kind of thing the main thrust of his detractors and his critics is that he doesn't go along with the fashionable contemporary feminist intersectional point of view worldview that says there is a system of oppression, system set up by white racist men for the benefit of white racist men. And he's, he opposes that. He calls it postmodernist feminism. Kind of, I think this is sort of his phrase for it. I don't know. I mean, like, postmodernism is such a weird... It's really hard to define what postmodernism actually means outside of really? the art world. Okay. I was just about to like, say, but... In yeah. the context of art, it's kind of easy. Yeah. But he's he talks soup. about like gender studies being a postmodern, hard left academic venture, right? I don't, I'm not entirely sure in what sense it's postmodern. Deconstructionist, I would agree with you. Post-structuralist, yeah, sure, fine. Postmodernist, eh, I don't know. But I think that's why he gets a lot of stick. He doesn't go with the contemporary feminist worldview, and he kind of speaks up for men in terms of modernity is taking its toll on everyone, including men. But men are kind of left out of the limelight. Like, there's basically, there's no market for male suffering. And he's trying to be the guy that speaks up for male suffering. But it's not really very macho to admit you suffer. True. <laughs> but, but it's not machismo in the traditional sense, right? But self-improvement. Where Jordan Peterson, like, he differs for me in terms of, like, he's a bit of a self-help guru and he's written his book. And this is why he's doing a tour mm. In, yeah, like he was doing a tour the last couple of weeks in the UK, and that's why he's appeared on Channel 4 News, a UK news channel with Kathy Newman. He's promoting his book, and it's a self-help book. But unlike most contemporary self-help books, it's not, you are a helpless victim of happenstance and yada, yada, yada. It's not your fault and all this. His is, you don't stand up enough for yourself. You're not assertive enough. You're not confident enough. You don't have enough confidence in yourself. He's that kind of guy. Mm-hmm. You're not a victim, you're just not standing up for yourself enough. And I think that's, um, that's why he's popular with men, but we'll play a little clip here to kind of illustrate what I mean. I don't think that young men are hear words of encouragement, some, some of them never in their entire lives, as far as I can tell. That's what they tell me. And the fact that the words that I've been, that I've been speaking, the YouTube lectures that I've done and put online, for example, have had such a dramatic impact is an indication that Young men are starving for this sort of message because, like, why in the world would they have to derive it from a lecture on YouTube? Now, they're not being taught that, they, that it's important to develop yourself. But does, it, does it bother you that your audience is predominantly male? Does that, isn't, isn't that a bit divisive? No, I don't think so. I mean, it's no more divisive than the fact that YouTube is primarily male and Tumblr is primarily well, that's divisive, female. that's isn't well, it? Tumblr is primarily female. Right. Now, accusing someone of... Uh being divisive because of their audience because of an audience it's this very strange line to go down because really you don't have a choice over your audience especially when it comes to a platform like youtube i mean you can target an audience right have that in mind yeah but like you said you don't control it like who uh, your message reverberates with it doesn't yeah. right and what this is this is a form of uh, it's kind of a guilt by association right but kathy newman's using this guilt by association on the premise that well, if more men like you than women do, there must be something wrong with what you're doing and what your message is. Like, who the, like, okay, he's a man talking about male plight, the suffering of men, 
why wouldn't his audience well, be majority male? I didn't see it so much as him talking about male plight. I thought he was more talking about, come on, guys, sort yourselves out. Yeah, but that's what his his message is. There's too yeah. many men that are so he's feeling too- helpless and lacking confidence and feel like they've got nothing to offer the world. And his his idea is, no, you do have something to offer. You you need to be more assertive, though. You can't let society pick up your pick up your slack. So, but him him doing that isn't divisive because it'd be a waste of time for him to say go to the women's institute and give the same lecture talking about how men can improve. Well, maybe yeah, exactly. It would be. It would seem like inefficient. His book to uh, specify his book isn't gendered. It's not aimed specifically at men. I see. Okay, so why she's accusing him of though just wanting to be like a male. Well, let's say, what is she accusing him of? Why is it, oh, your audience is 80% male. That's wrong. Why? Why is it wrong? She wants... It's a man talking about men. She's trying to make him out as some sort of totemic thing of toxic masculinity. Because mm. what was... We're using the video posted to Channel 4 News' YouTube page. This is where we're getting this clip from. And they uploaded the full conversation, if you can call it that, between Jordan Peterson and Kathy Newman, right? However... On the YouTube upload, they've omitted the introduction. You know, on a news program, the typical camera setup is you have in close shot on the presenter. I am about to introduce, I'm about to speak to this person. They're known for this, this and this. And then the camera cuts to them as they're being introduced, the guest, right? Yes. The YouTube upload just begins with Kathy Newman's first question to Jordan Peterson. There's no introduction. They they omitted that. They cut that out. And there's a reason they did that because I watched it. Well, it's exactly Um, 29 minutes 55 seconds so it's probably for they cut about 25 seconds of kathy newman introducing jordan peterson as a highly controversial right-wing conservative professor who's been accused of misogyny and enabling white supreme like she painted him as this alt-right monster which is not what jordan peterson is he's mostly i'd call it like he's basically a classical liberal mostly center left center right on some couple of issues mm-hmm. he's not the woman-hating misogynist that Kathy Newman initially tried to suggest to the audience. She was poisoning the well, right? She was sending a message to the audience. This is a bad man who believes bad things. I'm a good woman, and I'm going to challenge him. I'm going to take him head on. And so she's trying to paint him as something that he's not. And so this whole, like, oh, you're 80% of your audience is men, that's because she, she's subtly trying to imply there. That's because you're a misogynist. Do you think I'm being out of line with that or going too far? From what I hear, that seems very agenderized. Like she, she has a, she's sort of painted a target, hasn't she? Sort of justify a very harsh line of questioning if if someone was indeed, you know, a misogynist. Yeah, I mean, I'll leave a link to the video, the whole thing, twenty nine minute thing, right? But you know, so you can anybody listening can watch it for themselves and judge for themselves. But yeah, she's clearly adopted a quite adversarial stance. You can even hear from the tone of her voice when she's questioning him, right? We'll come, we'll come to the reason why I think Channel 4 News, they omitted the introduction bit. I think they did it basically to protect Kathy Newman. But anyway, we'll come to that in a little bit. Now, Kathy Newman has never explicitly said this. And I think it's a label that should really only be self-applied. It shouldn't be a label you apply to other people. But I am of the opinion of the belief that Kathy Newman is an intersectional, aka third wave feminist. But the reason why I think Kathy Newman is an intersectional feminist, even though she's not today explicitly said she is she has written articles in the past like putting out her kind of feminist stall in over the course of this 29 minute debate conversation she's having jordan peterson she hits almost all of the third wave intersexual feminist talking points 
So even if she's not, even if Kathleen Newman isn't an intersexual feminist, she likes their talking points. She likes their narratives at the very least. So Jordan Peterson, he's a man speaking up for the plight of men. At one point in the, in the uh, interview, debate, discussion, what have you, Kathy Newman asks the question, well, this whole self-help for men thing, what's in it for women? <laughs> like, what do women get out of it, right? Now, imagine for a moment that Jordan Peterson had said, uh, imagine he was speaking up for the plight of young black men. Do you think for a second Kathy Newman would respond almost angrily, what's in it for white women? I don't think for a second she would have asked that question, right? She's basically concerned about the effect it could have on women, men's implying, behaviour. Implying they would lose out if men started standing up for themselves more or something. Or just acting somehow differently. I don't understand. What, what, does, what does Jordan Peterson want? What does he want men to do? What, sum it up for me, like, be more manly, don't be a pussy. Okay, people listening, I'll leave the link, right? But anybody's listening, they don't have the benefit of seeing Jordan Peterson, what he looks like, what his mannerisms are like. He's not walking machismo. No. No, he's just very reserved. He's actually very buttoned up, literally. He's got his sort of top button done up on his shirt. Yeah. Quite, you know. Not very millennial. Yeah, but not showing his manly but chest his, hair. Right? His agenda is, he goes to universities and he has a lot of male students coming up to him saying, I'm doing this university course and all my professor does is talk shit about men, specifically white men. And it's like, I'm a little bit fucking fed up of it. And so eventually there's, there's going to come a point when young man after young man is coming to you. They're not happy with this. They're lacking confidence on that. And eventually at some point you're going to go, all right, I'm going to try and figure out what's going on here, see what I can do to help. And that's it. And it's like, if a woman came along, clinical psychologist came along and said, women are suffering. I'm speaking up for the plight of women. Do you think like uh, Jon Snow would be, well, what's in it for men? Huh? Oh, why should I help a woman? Not, not for a second. This is something you're going to get sick of hearing all of on this podcast. That kind of universal ethical principle, if it's not okay for you to do X to me, it's not okay for me to do X to you. If it's not okay for Jon Snow to question a woman who's advocating for women with what's in it for men, then surely it's not okay for a woman in Kathy Newman to ask whenever someone's speaking up for the plight of men, what's in it for women? Well, no, I think it's... Why the double standard? I think the question's quite, quite valid, you know, my question or no, what's in the, it for women her question because because ultimately um, men and women is is about how they they're interacting yeah but what's inherently wrong is something's good for men why does it have to be measured by how good it is for women first because mm. that's that's in effect what she's doing but she's prioritizing okay yo all right i hear this men are hurting and you're trying to help them but i'm putting women first yeah and it's it's sort of but you can see how it's it's sort of affecting her narrative a bit it's like you don't have to like look at the example that that maybe he experiences of people talking about their university professors in, in our own lives who don't go to university we can just watch it like tv adverts where like men oh are, my god where like yeah. men are always like absolute bumbling retards inept at most basic things jokers man. i wouldn't use those adverts as as feminist examples because uh well, obviously, like the women hold the it's not purse part strings of, to a lot of budgets. Yeah, in, that's that's what it household. is. It's not like uh, feminist theory has led to these kind of adverts. It's just the advertisers chasing sense. money. Yeah, they know that women like mocking men. They like wives in particular like emasculating their husbands. Yeah, because it's like a sort of it's almost part of the job description. Like yeah. when you look at married couples, it's like, oh wow, is it your job to emasculate your husband and embarrass him in public? Because you're really fucking good at it. You should get paid a salary. <laughs> But to go back to Kathy Newman's question of what's in it for women, here's Jordan Peterson's response. 
What's in it for the women, though? Well, what sort of partner do you want? Do you want an overgrown child? Or do you want someone to contend with that's going to help you? And that so you're you can saying rely on? women have some sort of duty to sort of help fix the crisis of masculinity? Well, it depends on what they want. Did he say that? Did he say women were obligated to help men? Did he say that? No. Exactly. He said men need to help themselves. He didn't say women need to help men. But I love this response to this what's in it for women question. He knows to answer this in a way to kind of satisfy Kathy Newman. He has to appeal to her own self-interest, her own selfishness. What do you want your fucking partner to be? This supine sissy, you know, a second backup pussy when you've already got one. What is it you're marrying? Do you know what I mean? Like, <laughs> like you've got to ask yourself these questions at some point in your life as a heterosexual woman, right? Who am I going to end up with? Like, here's the worst thing I've ever seen in my life. The most disheartening, dispiriting thing I've ever seen in my life. It was, I'm guessing, Indian couple, and it's husband and wife, and the husband is uh, pushing the trolley, and the wife is stacking up the trolley. And the husband goes to pick up one item that he wants. He's going to treat himself. He picks it up. He puts it in the trolley. The wife spots him. She gives him this dirty look and he just slowly put, takes it back out of the trolley and puts it on the shelf, right? And I was like, oh my fucking God, I hope it never, ever happens to me. And then I see them in the car park. The wife is sat in the front of the car waiting for the husband who's loading all the bags out of the trolley. And she's like knocking on the window like, hurry up, hurry up. He had this really miserable look on his face, save the 20 seconds where he was putting the shopping trolley back. But like he had a smile on his face for that 20 seconds where he couldn't hear her and he couldn't see her. I've seen couples have blazing rows inside supermarkets. And the dude's face is like, wow, we're going to do this here, right? Always, always the guy's face is like, can you not save this till we get home? This question. (laughs) So sorry to go back. Jordan Peterson. He's appealed to Kathy Newman's own self-interest in answering that question of what's in it for women. It goes to a much larger question, though, I think. And it's one that um, I think contemporary society is actually scared to analyze and answer this question. Is there still a reason? Is there any reason specifically why men should care about women and vice versa, why women should care about men outside of, well, people should just care about other people anyway, right? Is there a reason specifically for men to care about women and women to care about men? I they think used there to is, be. I, I don't think. I think it goes beyond reason. I think it's just fucking bi- biology, isn't it? We like, we na- you know, it's just meant to reproduce and ultimately like pass on your genes. So you have to like support each other in a benef- mutually beneficial way to exactly right pass on your genes. This is old world thinking, Come on, guys. This is old world thinking of men and women have roles that are complementary to each other that are beneficial to society as a whole. You can call that's it, old world shit, man. But you can use you can describe it using new world scientific terms. That's the thing. <laughs> Not to the intersectional feminists. They don't. There is. Uh, there's denialism on the right when it comes to things like climate change, race realism not really being a thing, you know, things like that, right? But there's denialism on the left as well. Um, in particular, evolutionary biology is massively in denial, particularly on the hard left. They don't buy arguments like that. I reckon Kathy Newman's kind of woman who wouldn't buy that argument. Contemporary society has done away with the idea that men and women have roles. Well, even if they're flexible, just the idea of roles altogether is gone. Intellectually and even practically, we, we, we can do that in today's world we can do that but physically and biologically and probably spiritually we can't you can physically do it but you know what most little boys and girls when they're growing up thinking about the future 
and what they're going to be when they're older. They're not fantasizing about this. Wow, I want to be 45, working to the bone every day in my high-powered career. Do you know what I mean? Even most boys don't think like that, especially little girls don't. They don't envision working on their 40th birthday, (laughs) still childless, still not married, still not settled down, working every day until they die. Everyone's just, fuck you, what's in it for me? So yeah, I can. Do so you think that was a good answer by Jordan Peterson, though? The uh, I think it what was, kind of partner do you want? I think it was actually a very positive, reassuring answer that speaks more to uh, a coalescence of purpose. And you know, it's like let's let's try and be effective as 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 a couple, a unit. Yeah, um, two heads are better than one. Yeah, but maybe, but like I say, maybe it was a question that needed to be asked, but she framed it in completely the wrong way. Because she should have said, you know, are you calling for a return to traditional values? How do you get there from, uh, I'm speaking up for male plight. How do you get there from female subjugation? We should go back to that. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, it's like, it, like I say, it's it, for, for them, anything going in the opposite direction. So of, where they're going. Yeah. Which like, to be honest, to be honest with you, even if you do, even if you do want to reach a complete state of homeostasis, which means like just a complete flat level between men and women parity yeah to to do that you'd you you will have you really will have to like really like batter men down that's what causes the friction doesn't it to to to, to get that parity men have to basically act completely opposite to how they're designed to here's the the paradox that um yeah i'm gonna say it the feminist movement presented men with we want you to treat us as equal to you which men interpreted as the same level of respect that we have or lack of respect that we have for ourselves. And I think women were like, whoa, 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 whoa. No, 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 wait. Don't treat us exactly how you treat other men because we're not other men. And they created a paradox of you have to treat us equally whilst recognizing the fact, strictly speaking, we're not equal as in not saying one's better or worse than the other. They're just, they're not equal in the sense of they're not exactly the same women's response to the way men treat other men is going to be different to the average man. You know, the average woman's response to that. Mm-hmm. It created a bit of a paradox that men are, okay, what the fuck do you want? That kind of thing. I'm treating you like I treat the men the same way and you're still getting angry at me. What's going on there? So Kathy Newman, Jordan Peterson, the real first point of contention was Jordan Peterson, uh, Kathy Newman quoted Jordan Peterson as saying, in effect, there was, there was a patriarchal system but there now no longer is a patriarchal system and women, women are not suffering from male oppression anymore. And she took contention with this and she brought up the pay gap between men and women. Now, she didn't explicitly say this, but she heavily implied the reason there's a pay gap between men and women is because of male oppression. Jordan Peterson responded, it's not just gender. Gender's not the only factor that accounts for why there's a difference between the median annual income of a man of the average man and the average woman that, you know, there's more factors. He said there was like 18 different factors. It was Kathy Newman was only focusing on gender. Yeah. You can use the word different factors or just uncomfortable truths or just reality. Like I said, there'll, there'll be like more men working as um, offshore undersea welders, high risk. which is high risk, high paid work, high rate of fatalities. Yeah. And, you know there'll I mean? be some women that will do it yeah. and do it well. That's not what we're saying. But in general, in general, out of the whole population, there'll be an imbalance. Right. And there was a point where um, Jordan Peterson said, listen, a big, a much greater factor in the gender pay gap are lifestyle choices, choices that men and women on average 
tend to make that are different. You're more likely, if you took an average man, an average woman, the man is more likely to decide, you know what, I'm going to forego family engagements, watching my kid graduate, blah, 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 things like that, to stay in the office and work late. He's more likely to decide to do that than a woman is. Not that a woman wouldn't ever do it. Yeah. They're just more likely on average. And she, like, Kathy Newman would come back with, oh, you're, you're, these are vast generalizations. Yeah. And they're both, they're both stupid in a, in a way because they, they've got to, they've got to realize, they've got to move beyond this argument and realize it's just a temporary argument because over the space of time, the pay gap has narrowed and it will keep narrowing and of course what we don't realize is the sort of jobs people will have 30 years from now we don't know yet those jobs don't exist yet services automation will change we'll probably get basic universal income because there'll be more robots doing jobs than people and this whole issue will be like null and void anyway so like they should just move beyond it for fuck's sake when universal basic (laughs) income comes in though i promise you kathy newman will be out there complaining well, well, on average, men still are taking more. They're still taking home more money on average than women are because universal basic income will come in as for everyone. It's universal. So even people who are still working are going to get it. But anyway, like, they'll never be... You don't know, though. You the don't. pay gap has reduced, you're right. It'll keep reducing. It won't go away. Yeah, There will never be a point where it's like, we have achieved parity on the pay front in terms of men versus women, men and women. Yeah, The pendulum might swing the other way. You might see women out-earning men. And there will be nothing, you will hear nothing from the feminists about women out-earning men. There'll be no uh, cries of injustice on that one. And uh, like at one point, Kathy Newman goes, oh, you're, you're making generalizations about women. All women are different. Not really. In the same vein that all men are not that different. There's variants. You can zoom in on like specific things and find variants. You can also zoom out and find commonalities, groupings. She's clutching at straws, Kathy Newman here. Desperately trying to, because she set this up as an adversarial thing. And so she's just going, oh, you, you just made a vast generalization because she has to say something. Yeah. Even if it is a bit vacuous. Like, th- to her misfortune, you know, she's got a very sort of quiet, <laughs> calm, unreactive guy, you know. She needed someone like Milo Yiannopoulos. That's what I was going to say. She's trying to treat him like, as though he were this provocateur. The, the biggest mistake people made with Milo Yiannopoulos, just quickly, they treated him like a serious conservative thinker when that's not what he is, and he's never portrayed himself that way. But yeah, she's trying to treat him like the controversialist that Milo Yiannopoulos is, and he's not. He seems rather patrician and sincere. One thing I do like about Jordan Peterson is he's an academic who speaks in plain English. He said this, this came up in this uh, interview with Kathy Newman. He chooses his words carefully so that when somebody does try and twist his words and misrepresent him, it's pretty obvious. And that's kind of like, um, we're not going to go through the whole of this video because that would take probably like two hours. But there was a pattern that emerges over the course of the 29 minutes where Jordan Peterson will say, my, my position is X and Kathy Newman would rebut. So what you're saying is Y. And then Jordan Peterson would have to say no and clarify what he's saying is X, and then Kathy Newman would come back and just, she would misinterpret. His clarification. Yeah, the clarifying statement would be also misinterpreted as long as with the initial statement. So and it's it, like, it's it like, went a, on like that. It's like a willful ignorance. She's purposefully doing it because he's speaking in such plain English that any layman can understand what he's talking about. To be honest with you, you could take it from the perspective like she she just wants to get a message out and it doesn't matter who she, like anyone could be sitting in that chair she's just using them as a conduit to speak to people so like he's going men and women make different choices in life that lead to different outcomes 
And then Kathy Newman's going, so you're saying women should just accept there's never going to be gender parity in terms of FTSE 100 CEOs and they should just suck it up and take it. And he's like, no, women can speak their minds in exactly the same way I can speak my mind, you can speak your mind. Yeah, so you, you, you can't really call it an interview. You can't even really call it a discussion. Um, she's assassinating his character no, she's just, every opportunity she thinks she's getting. She's just using him as a scaffolding to hang her own flag off. Yeah, and it's all because she primed this as this guy is really controversial. Yeah, but he, And some people say he's a, some people say he's a misogynist. Yeah, and it's And I'm going to take him on because I'm a progressive 21st century woman. Like you've heard the term straw man argument. Mm. It's thrown around a lot these days because we are a fake society. The art of conversation is dead, so all we do is straw man each other. But anyone doesn't know the idea of a straw man argument is where you're not responding to what the person opposite you you're let's say, for lack of a better term, your opponent is saying. And what you're doing is building a caricature, a misrepresentative caricature of their arguments, a proverbial straw man, and then you're setting light to the straw man. You're not responding to what they're saying, you're responding to your misinterpretation of what they're saying. So it is slightly agenderized. And she does what I have now dubbed, it's an argumentation style that I call the feminist carousel. It's someone issues statement feminist purposefully misinterprets that statement and then purposely misinterprets the clarifying statements that come afterwards and then it just goes round and round in a circle i'm saying x so you're saying y no i'm saying x oh so really you're saying y no i'm saying x and it goes round and round and round and that's what this jordan peterson kathy versus kathy newman debate was like for 29 minutes mm-hmm. she got scolded for this kathy newman it was a bad performance on her part being objective so there was actually like a sort of backlash on social media or Twitter yeah, or something? in that, oh, well, uh, he would say one thing and then she would just keep twisting it. It was obvious to anybody that's what she was doing. But I think it was kind of deserved. Mm. So does he stay cordial for the whole interview? I would implore people to watch this because Jordan Peterson, for 15 minutes, like the first half of it, does a masterclass in how to deal with someone who is being really uncharitable. Who's trying to set fire to your straw bad. Yeah, and who's feigning like, oh, this is a this is a back and forth conversation where you, we're going to respond to what each other says, and then it's not. They're not responding to what you're saying. That's and so it's kind when that of happens. Yeah, it's, you feel like, uh oh, what do I do? From his point of view, he must be th- this is fucking futile. Yeah, she's just not listening to what I'm saying. But he for 15 minutes he did a masterclass on how to deal with someone like that and how to make persuasive arguments. Philosophy is all about debate. Like if you, when you read like philosophical literature, it's usually not always, but it's typically in the form of one philosopher arguing with another one. And there's an idea in uh, philosophy of pathos, legos, ethos. Pathos is where you make an emotional pill to try and convince someone. Legos is logic and reason. Ethos is. I am a person of good moral standing and ethical character, and my argument, my position is rooted in that. And then, like you hit people with those three like a three-pronged attack emotional appeal appeal to logic and reason appeal to kind of like kind of like an ethical authority type thing and jordan peterson does all three over the course of the first 15 minutes and he does it really well and he's like he's basically put kathy newman on the back foot after 15 minutes of kathy newman just repeatedly misrepresenting him just not responding to what he's saying he he doesn't lose his temper not visibly at least but he does become exasperated he's like Everything I'm saying to you, you're responding as though I said something else. He gets a little bit frustrated. And to be honest with you, taking it down to 25 levels, like when I've had like arguments with some girls, it's a bit like that. It's like no matter what I say, 
<laughs> you're just you're just not listening you're just gonna you've got this thing in mind i can't change your mind no matter what i say usually in that scenario <laughs> I'm that's sorry. we need to be away each other <laughs> away from each other for 24 hours and then we'll try this again what kind of role should a broadcast journalist play in terms of dealing someone like a Jordan Peterson, who admittedly he's going against the grain on some things? He's he's trying to swim upstream on some things. He does seem, from my limited experience of him, fairly unsensational. So how should Kathy Newman... Not even, not even uh, humorous or trying to entertain in that sense. Like I say, he's, he's, he's rather sin- sincere and just plain speaking. How should Kathy Newman have approached him? I, I think we both agree she came at him with the wrong line of attack. Maybe it was wrong to try and attack him in the first place. Yeah, maybe she shouldn't have made it about him. Maybe she should have made it more about, even if it's an imagined movement that he's part of, or is sort of championed by similar similarly to a way that like sort of the neo-nazis might like donald trump but he, donald trump isn't a neo-nazi really like women haters might really like yeah, him I was but it doesn't say, make him a women hater he's become a bit of a figurehead for anti-feminists bearing in mind anti-feminism does not necessitate anti-women hating women anti-women or hating women yeah. in general yeah doesn't you there are like you can find fault with feminist theory and not hate women it is technically possible but i think the way i think like i said kathy newman kind of fucked herself she painted herself into a corner by uh painting jordan peterson as something that he isn't a monster that he isn't and so she really did struggle to try and convey that over the 29 minutes and in fact i would, I would outright say she failed and like I said, he's one of the only academics I've ever come across that speaks in plain, simple English. He might reference something. He might reference an ism that you, maybe you've not heard of before, right? But when he does that, you, you pause the video, you go to your favorite search engine, and you just go define, and then you attempt your best spelling at the word he just said that you didn't understand. And then you go back to watching the video. It's not hard. It's just we, we're lazy and curious people. But he's trying to fight that. Peter Hitchens, I think, yesterday called Jordan Peterson a cult leader bit much they're, they're sort of competitors on a youtube level yeah. aren't they they're, they're just... both polemics yeah going against the grain yeah he's got some competition yeah but i wouldn't just dis- dismiss it as that though because there is... they'll be like fighting with pewdiepie next you wait and see but it's like what you said when you you can't choose your audience yeah there's going to be some dickheads in his audience there's going to be some dickheads in channel 4 news's audience there's dickheads i see dickheads all the time you know, under the line on guardian comments you wouldn't expect that you think they'd all be kale-eating, sandal-wearing hippies, right? But no, some of them are pricks. But I think Kathy Newman, um, she made it so that she couldn't switch gears in the sense of, okay, I've come at you in a really adversarial way, really competitive way. Now I'm going to switch gears because that didn't work. And I'm just going to treat you neutrally. Like I'm actually going to hear what you're saying to me and respond to it in a coherent way. She couldn't do that. She would have to admit, by the way, audience, you remember when I said this guy is a piece of shit? <laughs> she had a, Maybe he's all right. You know what I mean? Like she can't do that. She can't uh, have egg in her face like that. And I think that's why Channel Four cut out the introduction to the YouTube upload. It's in effect, it's lying by omission. It's trying to misdirect the audience. She set this. She set herself up. But we're going to withhold that from you by cutting off the introduction. They've uh, Channel Four, particularly, obviously, they've come out and said. Oh, the misogynistic backlash was so much against Kathy Newman that we've had to hire private security to protect her, uh, akin to Laura Kunzberg and Corbynite. Mm-hmm. Substantial minority of Corbynite supporters, mm-hmm. you know. I didn't know. I, I, I didn't know there was such thing as radical anti-feminists who would go out and like assassinate a journalist because she's a, a feminist. 
Really? There isn't a radical anti-feminist. There's anti-feminists, but there's nothing radical about them. Someone might have written in the comment section like, oh, I'm going to shoot you or something. We need to make a distinction between death threats and idle death threats. I, I can't, I'm constantly making idle death threats all day when I'm out driving and just like constantly threatening to kill everyone as I'm driving past. Well, what I can't stand is what's included in death threat statistics now is I wish this person would die. That's not a death threat. That's not, I'm going to kill you, cunt. Mm. I know where you live, bastard. Like, do you know what I mean? That's not a death threat. <laughs> but they're counted, they're counted amongst the statistics now. For fuck's sake, we're such a pussy, wimpish, infantile society. But poor old Jordan Peterson... Because this narrative forms that there's this massive misogynistic backlash, and then it's sort of like pinned on him. Like I see routinely, oh, why, why doesn't he call off his dogs? Stop the hounding, because they're not his dogs. What do you think when somebody's talking shit about Kathy Newman that they got the green light from Jordan Peterson first? Like mm. you can't control things like that. I don't hold it against people of any distinction, political persuasion. That there are some dickheads who like you can't hold that against them. We're, we're such an infantile society that we treat grown men and women akin to how we treat little boys and girls. We treat little boys as though the punishment for their misgivings and wrongdoings should be more severe than it should be for little girls. You go, you go easy on little girls. Or at least in my schooling days, early primary school days, it was like punishment was, was doled out to the boys with oh, zero qualms. Yeah, yeah. Always a hesitation when it came to the girls who did the same thing, just as wrong as what the boys did. Yeah. But like, always a hesitation of should we punish them as like we do the boys? I, I can even remember, like, this is going back a long time, but I could remember one kid, Mara, who got picked up by Mr. Wakeley and he got thrown in the bin. <laughs> you know, it was more physical. Do you and know? Violent. Retribution was more, more, more sudden and dramatic. Boys and girls react differently to stimuli in general. They're going to react differently to disciplinary actions. But we're treating grown men and women in the same ways. We, like we're calling for the same disparity while simultaneously saying men and women should be treated exactly the same. A little bit of a contradiction there. And coupled with our favourite favorite talking point on this podcast infantilization of society Is we it? are we're, we're fucking overgrown children it comes up in almost every episode i thought donald trump came up in almost every episode he's a bit of a man child though isn't he trump exactly yes that's what they've all been saying you know he is he gets really upset like he throws hissy fits <laughs> when things don't go his way he speaks like a kid very simply his speech patterns are very uh childlike and very honest and open to the point like you said last week you'll be in touch with your inner child he is his inner child <laughs> We go now from infantilization to miniaturization with Matt Damon's latest flick, Downsizing. The cause of all the catastrophes we are seeing today is overpopulation. We are proud to unveil the only practical remedy to humanity's gravest problem. Are you ready, Doctor? Yes, I'm ready. That is wild, isn't it? It's just wild. Downsizing takes the pressure right off. Plus, you're really making a difference. You mean all that crap about saving the planet? Yeah. 
Downsizing is about saving yourself. We live like kings. We got the best houses, best restaurants, Cheesecake Factory. We got three of them. In Leisureland, your $52,000 translates to $12.5 million to live on for life. Wow. Do you understand that you will undergo the permanent and irreversible medical procedure commonly known as downsizing and that your bodies will be approximately 0.0364% of their current mass and volume? Nervous? Uh, little. Directed by Alexander Payne, starring Matt Damon, Kristen Wiig, Hong Chow, and Christopher Waltz. So downsizing follows a kindly and unassuming occupational therapist who undergoes a new procedure to be shrunken to only five inches tall so that he and his wife can, on the one hand, help save the planet with the added benefits that they can actually live like millionaires after being downsized. And so that's like the movie starts with Scandinavian Norwegian scientist. He injects this lab mouse with something, lab rat with something. You don't know what. Puts him in a little box, flicks this switch. Turns it off, opens the door, and he's like, <gasps> runs to his boss's office. I'm like, Jürgen, Jürgen, it works, it works. And what he's done is he's mastered the technique of shrinking a human being down from about two meters tall to only five inches tall. And he's done this. The impetus for this is, of course, climate change, CO2 emissions, methane emissions, and what have you. And of course, if you, the premise is if you shrink humanity down, you're shrinking down the amount of waste humans produce, both in terms of plastics and biological waste. You're also reducing carbon emissions and the real incentive. You're less of a tax burden if you're five inches tall, which means the equity you had, like your assets when you were big, you obviously no longer need those anymore, right? You no longer need the house, the big house you were living in. Mm-hmm. And so it's like your value goes up immediately from being your worth maybe a couple of hundred grand to being worth like 10 or 12 million dollars. Because you could basically buy a really, really nice doll's house. Exactly. The the, (laughs) the amount of materials that goes into building your mansion is far less than goes into building a a log cabin. And so Matt Damon's a guy, he's basically like he's the archetype babyface hero of like he's down on his luck. He's spent the majority of his adult life living for the benefit of somebody else, trying to help other people, never doing anything for himself. And so you see um, the course of the movie is about 20 years. Mm. Thankfully, there aren't montages. It's just black screen, white text, 10 years later, five years later, things like that. And so this Norwegian scientist invents this technique, announces it to the world. And uh, Matt Damon's watching it on TV and you see him like, oh, my God, that's amazing. He goes back home. He's living with his mother, who's extremely ill. And that he has to inject something, maybe like insulin, I'm not sure, into like directly into her buttocks every night. Mm. He's got a miserable existence, right? And then we skip forward 10 years, and the Norwegian scientist who came up with this miniaturization process has formed the first small people colony. And they've had the first small person baby being born organically in the, in the colony. And Matt Damon's mother has obviously died, passed away, and he's now married, but they're both... His wife, played by Kristen Wiig, they've both got sort of dead-end jobs that they're not happy with. I think she works in a shoe store. Mm-hmm. Whereas he works at, it's like a meat production factory, and he basically treats people for repetitive stress. What's it called? Repetitive? RSI, repetitive stress injury. And so he's going nowhere in life. His wife's not going anywhere. Together they're not going anywhere. They're fed up of living in this house that De- Matt Damon grew up in. And so friend of Matt Damon's goes through the downsizing process and he's selling it to Matt Damon is like you basically you get rich quick. And so this Norwegian scientist he came up with this process as a method to save humanity. The reason why people are actually doing it is because it's a get rich quick scheme. It seems quite makes sense. 
seems like quite a good idea and you'd, you'd make a smaller environmental impact as well it might, might yeah. be a good idea for the whole world to downsize i mean a good thing about this film right it's it's not heavy in any way it's like a light-hearted quirky film that i think was mismarketed as either being laugh out loud comedy mm-hmm. farcical comedy and also like oh it's it says a lot it has a lot of it to it in terms of like social commentary and it's a social satire so and it touches on those things but only lightly but you and at, at, at the root of it though at the heart of it is this simple unpretentious straight love story okay so you wouldn't describe it as like a adult honey i shrunk the kids it's not like a grown-up version of that there's no they don't really play around too much with the thing like there's not there's not a scene where he gets chased by a cat is there no, no, no. They, they, oh. they avoid, like, a bird coming. Like, okay. Although there is, obviously, like, the attention to detail. Alexander Payne has succeeded in a sense. He's taken what is quite a silly premise, a humorous but also silly idea of shrinking people down in order to save the planet from ecological disaster, right? But at no point when you're watching the film, even though you're finding it humorous, at no point do you think it's beyond Different. the realms of plausibility. There's so much attention to detail, but I think you're going to ask me, do you, are you told anything about the shrinking process? Yeah, do, you, do they explain the tech? No. Okay, so that's, that's quite old school way of just accept it, get on, move on. And as, yeah, like I said, it's, it's funny in the way that you do just accept, because there's so much attention to detail in terms of, like Matt Damon and Kristen Wiig, before they go through the process, they're signing all the papers and everything like that, and they get this weirdly shaped red box to put prized possessions in. So wedding rings, birth certificates, things like that. Yeah, the really, really important stuff. Mm. And you're thinking like, why is it shaped? Why is the box shaped like that? But later on in the movie, when they're shrunk down, this lorry pulls up, miniature lorry pulls up to a miniature mansion with the red box. And this like delivery guy puts the wedding rings like <laughs> over one shoulder, and, like, over another one. And he's like walking to the house really slowly carrying them. It has really nice little attention to details, like things like that. It's just frantic. You've got a call. Paul, don't be mad at me. Please don't be mad. I can't leave my family. I can't leave my friends. I'm sorry, Paul. I should have been thinking more about myself. Thinking about yourself? I'm five fucking inches tall! Trying to describe the tone of the film, right? In the trailer there, you get the impression, like I said, it's laugh out loud funny. And also has, like, a lot to say to it in terms of social commentary. What doesn't come through is that the film touches these things only in a superficial kind of way it raises them but it raises a point it raises a question but doesn't answer it plays it safe the real bread and butter of the film is this isn't spoiler territory because it's in the trailer matt damon he, he and his wife Kristen wig they go to the clinic to go through the process and uh they're separated because they do a bunch of men together in the same room and they do a bunch of women in a separate room and so they're told right you're going to be separated for four or five hours and then you'll be rejoined once we've shrunken you down Matt Damon goes through the process. As he wakes up, he gets a phone call from his wife. All like, don't hate me. Please don't hate me. I didn't go through with it. And it's kind of funny because... Because it's a permanent process. It's irreversible. Yeah. You can't be resized. And so it does... Obviously, I think they did that for the shock factor. But it's hard to sum up succinctly what the tone of the film is because there's humorous elements to it, but it's not laugh out loud funny. There's dramatic elements to it, but it's mostly a light-hearted film. It's not that heavy. It's not like an action. There's no action sequences. No, no, really. Oh, I won't bother seeing it then. And there's, well, <laughs> I'll there's, just watch my DVD yeah, of Under Siege no, 2. At no point is there a heist where like, the, they use the size to their advantage to rob a bank <laughs> or anything like that. There's nothing like that. Okay. And there's also a bit in the middle where actually it starts to drag. And you're kind of feeling a little bit bored because you're just watching Matt Damon 
His wife's left him. He's on the downslide. He's had to give up this dream of li- like retiring a millionaire, living in this big mansion, and now he has to work a de- another dead end job. He's gone from a dead end job in the big world to oh. a dead end job in the small world. Oh, like, so you, so you have to have jobs in the small world? I thought you didn't have to work at all. Well, because his situation changed. Yeah, his oh, value okay. was obviously immediately oh, halved I, I thought, because I, the I white Kristen uh, Wiig took uh, half the money. Because obviously, like you can't stay married with one of you's tall uh, and the other one of you's really small, living in this kind of reservation. But it's it's kind of lit down a little bit by the fact there's nothing really memorable about the script. It's very well acted, although the characters are a little bit... They're just archetypes. They're kind of stereotypical archetype characters and one-dimensional in that sense. Like I say, in the middle, it kind of lags a little bit. And it, you start feeling like, oh, wow, do you know what? This might just be a film that had a fun, quirky premise, and that was it. But thankfully, this plain, simple love story emerges oh, like about an hour into this two-hour and ten-minute film. I said that the script wasn't particularly great. There wasn't really any kind of memorable lines. The acting, on the other hand, was really good. Like, Matt Damon's performance was good. Kristen Wiig, she's, she, you know, she's only in it for about the first 25 minutes, but she was good. And uh, a newcomer, Hong Chow, I think is an American actress of Vietnamese descent, I want to say. I'm not entirely sure. And she plays a Vietnamese woman in the film. And um, I could see progressive people seeing this movie and being thinking, like, wow, she's just like a racial stereotype. She's a little bit more than that. But she taught like this, you know? From Vietnam, you doctor. No, I'm an occupational therapist. That means doctor. You know, you fix people. Like I mean, you could sum her up as uh, it's a classic white man saved by noble savage. You know, okay. civilized liberal white man finds his mojo Redemption again. And yeah, yeah, thanks to this third world like <laughs> jeremy it's kind of a classic trope in hollywood yeah. films and it, this is no different getting but, back to my roots yeah but because it's a vietnamese woman rather than the stereotypical black guy that was popular in the 80s mm-hmm. this is kind of a fresh take i guess in the sense that it's a vietnamese woman and oh yeah she's a political dissident she got shrunken down because she went against this nondescript Vietnamese regime. And so, like, Matt Damon starts helping her out, and what he uncovers, and this is, like, where I think the kind of, uh, it's a social satire talk is coming from. should preface this with the idea that these small people live in these special reservations made for them, and they're obviously it's all very white, very middle class. Everyone lives in a mansion, as I said, but they're still an underclass. Mm-hmm. Even in the small people world, even in spite of this get-rich-quick scheme, there's an underclass that serves the richer people in the small people downsized community. So the people that run the reservation, they know these yeah. this underclass of people are there, who are the cleaners, and the people that clean the streets and pick up the trash, you know, the real the working-class backbone. And so I guess that's kind of a social commentary. Mm-hmm. Anytime there's a new revolutionary technology... It's the richer people who benefit benefit from it first and initially. And if we're, if the lower people benefit at all, it's only in minor ways. I do find this sometimes with these with films where like the, the concept will be fantastic, but the actual story won't exploit, you know, that concept or at least the world that concept is based in. I made a mistake. You're a nice guy, probably a little bit pathetic. Who are you to talk to me that way? Okay, maybe sometimes I'm a little bit asshole, but the world needs assholes, otherwise where would shit go out? You may find yourself... I know this can put a pretty big dent in anyone's self-esteem. We have all sorts of ways to have a good time down here. (laughs) Open your eyes. The world is filled with things to see. My God, what have I done? That woman is really sick. You help her. 
can do anything you want. Oh my God. I finally have a chance to do something that matters. Big land of opportunity. <laughs> In terms of themes, right? It's like I said, it's fairly simple, straightforward about material possessions aren't what make you happy in life. It's not the measure. It's not the only measure of success is what, how big the house you live in, how pretty your wife is and that kind of shit. But what saves, what kind of carries this film through and provides the happy ending isn't the sci-fi premise isn't the theme of you're destined for something great when really you're not. It's just really about a love story. It's about Matt Damon suffering a, a big mishap where his wife leaves him. He's on, he's on the downward slide. Life's not going great. And then he's saved by this woman. By finding a new love interest, she saves him. And that's like where the feel-good element of the film comes from because like it tries to get a little bit heavy in the last 20, 25 minutes. And you're kind of almost, you're kind of like wondering a bit, sat there in the audience like, where is this going to go? How's this going to end? And so there's, there's an attempt at, at injecting drama in the sense of, oh God, Matt Damon has found his calling and now he's split between being part of the last human survivors because the Norwegian scientists has set up this colony deep underground. And so they're going to be the last surviving humans. Wow. To restart humanity. Yeah, because the, because they're so small, it took a, a small number of resources to ensure that humanity will survive. Yeah, You don't need the big warehouses full of food and shit because people are so small. Like, that's the idea, right? But the, uh, the, there's drama introduced in the sense of Matt Damon's torn between he's been looking for something that tells him what his place in the world is, his destiny. And he has to decide between that and going off with the woman he's falling in love with. And you know at the end, you know he's gonna, you know what he's gonna pick. It's not a spoiler, right? Yeah. But that kind of saved the film. Up until that moment where he starts falling in love with a new woman, mm. you are getting bored. Because as fun and as quirky as seeing little people talk to big people is, it's not enough for a feature-length film. And it's, it's saved by this love story. And um, the, the actor's performances carry you through as well. It was a well-acted film. So, I mean, I'd say in summary, it's, it's a fun, light-hearted, quirky film that touches on social commentary and what are we going to do about climate change? And, you know, it raises questions. It does the usual film, American film, of raising questions but not daring to answer them mm -hmm. and just going, fuck it, here's a love story because we've got to have an ending. And it, the love story does provide a feel-good. You'll be walking out of the cinema feeling good. Because ultimately, that's what this film is. It's a feel-good love story with a quirky sci-fi premise in the background. Well, that was an attempt, at the very least, at having an adult, rational conversation on various topics. We hope you enjoyed it. If you did enjoy it, give us a like on SoundCloud and Facebook, uh, where you can follow us. You can also follow us on Twitter, at ill underscore insight my thanks once again to tim thank you for being here again despite being grossly underpaid gender pay gap due to sexism i will dominate subjugate and underpay men whenever i can <laughs> you're only being intersectionist i appreciate your efforts yeah so more feminists will sleep with me you'll hear from us next monday with some more ill-informed insight until then goodbye Bye.